The following is intended only for mature audiences. Hello and welcome to the number one podcast that absolutely nobody listens to. This is Getting Deep with Phil and Az. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about The Secret Barrister. Intrigued, Harvey? Very intrigued. So, Harvey, as you know, I'm into my reading a lot at the moment. Yeah. Right. And I'm currently reading a book called The Secret Barrister. Now, the problem with that is, as the title suggests, suggests we don't know who the author is. It is a secret. This has been published anonymously by oh, a barrister. Okay. Okay, okay yep. Yeah. I want to set you a little bit of a backstory before I read a bit of this, uh, this book to you. This barrister has had a run-in with a young gentleman called Kyle. Kyle is 13 years old. And he is in the court process for willingly entering a vehicle that he knew was stolen. Okay? Okay, yeah. Obviously, as as I get into the segment, you'll become aware that his you know, his family are sort of that way inclined a little bit. His dad's a little bit of a, you know, well, wannabe criminal. Same with his older brothers. There's fear he could go the same way. Okay? Okay, yeah. So let me let me start with this. <clears throat> Which brings us back to Carl, who is eventually bundled into my court to be dealt with. He pleads guilty to a charge of being carried in a vehicle taken without consent. And after I briefly outline the facts to the bench, Carl's solicitor stands to mitigate. The submissions are frank. Carl wants to go to prison. He has tried his best on the existing community order, but has fallen short. He doesn't feel he has the discipline to cooperate with probation and do unpaid work. He is the product of a broken society for whom there is no hope. He invites the court to send him to a young offender institution. What are you thinking so far, are we? It's, it's quite fascinating, actually, like, talking about the unpaid work thing. Obviously, people would think that he'd, he needs to pay for whatever crimes he's done or whatever, but... It's not teaching them how life could be on the outside after the time. Yeah. Uh, let me continue if that's all right. Yeah. The screaming subtext to those in the know is that to Carl, sitting around listlessly with his mates in a YOI, a young offenders institution, for a few weeks, uh, appears far less onerous than dragging himself out of bed and getting the boss to the probation office to meet his supervisor twice a week for the next six months. The immediate horror of first-time prison would disabuse him of this, but having never tasted custody before, Kyle is sure that it's a doddle. Young and naive, perhaps, are we? Young and naive, yeah. Um, but, again, if you're sat around doing nothing all day, maybe it is a doddle. But, you know. <laughs> maybe it is. Uh, let me continue. The magistrates, though, seemingly cottoning on to Kyle's master plan, are not so quick to dismiss Carl's pessimism in his own capabilities. Listen here, the chair of the young bench uh, addresses Carl directly. We don't want to lock you up. You are a young lad with a bad past, but we've read a lot about you in your previous probation reports, and we think you've got prospects. You're bright, you're intuitive. If you put the same level of commitment into bettering yourself, as you do relieving motor vehicles of their sat-navs, you could make something of your life. So we're going to ask you, please, Kyle, say you'll accept probation's help. Do the unpaid work 
and we'll let this com community order continue. Kyle is unpersuaded. He responds in person. I can't do it. Not just won't. Can't. It's beyond him. Any more thoughts, Harvey? It's quite quite fascinating coming from a 13-year-old, knowing that like, he's not even an adult yet, and he already knows that the way life will be anyway. Yeah. Like, for an adult, obviously we all go to work and pay for something and probably end up with nothing anyway, but yeah, yeah. he's already aware that he could be working for nothing. Well, lack of motivation, really. You know what I mean? Even as a 13-year-old, he hasn't got that get-up-and-go, that drive and determination. Anyway, let me continue. Nonsense, young man. Your probation officer in this report says, in fact, can we get the probation officer to court? A relay of messages to the court probation office confirms that Carl's supervisor can get there within the hour. The case is stood down for us to crack on with another trial. An hour later, the probation officer is in the witness box, joining hands with the magistrates as they all vainly coax Kyle into agreeing to do the work, but to no avail. The magistrates are not yet to be defeated. Thinking on their feet, they yank out the big guns. Is your mum with you at court today, Carl? Of course she isn't. The parents of the Carls of this world never are. But could she get here if we stood the case down for another hour? Two hours later, Carl's mother arrives in her pyjama bottoms. She is swiftly commandeered by the bench for their cause, and she joins the chorus of pleas to her recalcitrant son. You're a good boy at heart. Don't be like your dad and your brothers. Make something of yourself. Come on, Kyle, they evangelise. We believe in you. We believe. We believe. At 6pm, some four hours after the hearing started, Carl's resolve slips. A maybe quickly tumbles into a yes. And, to general astonishment, this truculent bulldog of a youth appears to transform into the scared, weeping, bruised child that the bench had seen hiding deep inside. I do want help, he sobs. I don't want to spend my life in and out of prison. You are right, Mum. You are right, Your Majesty. I'll do it. I'll do the work. The bench smile at one another. They smile at Carl. Carl smiles at Mum, who smiles at the probation officer who smiles at the solicitor. Had I a dancing partner, I'd smile at them too. This is what summary justice is about. Rolling up sleeves, solving problems, and improving lives. We have to formally retire to consider our decision. The chair winks at Carl with a grandfatherly twinkle. And we'll be back in a moment. I still do not know all these years later what happened in that retiring room. Nor do any of us in court, least of all the incredulous legal advisor who had to get the chair to repeat twice what he was saying. They return stony-faced and send Carl down for nine weeks. End of story, Harvey. What is your thoughts on that absolute madness of a story? So basically, they're saying that playing the reverse psychology, he would rather go to prison. They're yeah. saying, no, do the work and you won't have to go to prison. Then he decides that, yeah, okay, I'll do the work, and then he goes down for it. <laughs> he goes down anyway, yeah. So, Carl was right to stick to his guns initially, because they're going to do that anyway. But what they want to do, they want to turn it round, then shoot him down themselves. You think it's that cynical? 
I think it is, it's, I've never been in a courtroom or anything like that, but I can imagine their ego gets hit when someone just rolls over for them. They want to play with their food before they eat it. Okay, fair. I mean, these are the high members of society, or they're supposed to be. You know, these are the upper echelons of the community. Uh, maybe there is some extent in that, in what you're saying, that they don't just want to see you accept your fate, they want to see you squirm first. Maybe there is a little bit of that to it, aren't we? Because if Carl was willing to go to prison and do whatever time he needed to do and then get out, why couldn't he just do that? Why did he? Why do they have to change his mind, get his mum involved, get everyone involved for him to go, yeah, you know what, I'm a scared little boy now, I'll do the work to, to stay out of prison and then chuck him in anyway? It's madness, isn't it? Uh, I was reading that story last night and I thought, you know what, I'm going to have to share this with Harvey and I thought it would make a good podcast segment. So I hope that's what it was. It was a good segment. Definitely an eye-opener. Like, again, I've never been to court or been through, through that kind of stuff, but I can imagine the turnaround in, in Carl's head going from, maybe I don't want to go to prison and then you end up there anyway. Yeah, almost like a little bit of relief. Oh, right, it's not going to be easy perhaps, but I'm going to do the work. My mum's going to be happy because I ultimately chose the right thing. Then you know what? Your fate is in someone else's hands who hands it down to you. And in this case, it was the magistrate who says, Carl, you're going down for nine weeks. Obviously, we'll never know the outcome now if Carl did stick to his guns and how long he would have got in prison. True. But if they already made the decision he was going to prison anyway, what's the need for the show? Well, there you go. So, I'm glad you like that Carl story. Uh, you okay for another one? Yep, hit me. Right, so this one isn't necessarily about any individual as it was in the first story with Kyle. Although there is a name that pops up. Uh, it's Rio. Okay, and this, but this, this story is a little bit more based around the idea of being on bail as opposed to being remanded. Do you know the difference? Yep, on bail is... Remand is basically taken to prison before your uh, court date. Oh, wait Yeah, yeah. And, um, and yeah, obviously bail means you can go about <clears throat> your normal life or try to after, after an arrest waiting for a court appearance. Yeah, I'll start with this then, Harvey. Rio was charged with multiple counts of rape, alleged to have committed against his long-term partner, Laurie, over a period of several years. She had fled their dysfunctional, alcohol-stained relationship with their infant son from the previous spring, and, upon finding refuge at a friend's home, had recounted in lurid detail the variety of physical and sexual abuse she had suffered at Rio's hands. Following charge, Rio had been refused bail, both by the magistrates and, upon appeal, by a Crown Court judge, and this along with a series of other perceived slights, lay behind the decision to dispense with his previously instructed counsel and direct his solicitor to find me some other cunt. Alan, with me as his willing lackey, was that cunt. It's easy to understand how alienation and frustration can set in. It had done so for Rio. He had been remanded for nearly five months by the time Alan and I pulled through the prison gates in Alan's vintage Vauxhall Vectra, and he would serve another month or so until trial. The grounds for the court refusing bail appeared, to my barely trained eye, reasonable enough. Rio's previous record made for concerning reading. Domestic violence was his stock in trade. He had not only been convicted of assaulting two previous partners, but had in each case 
gone on to breach the restraining order that the court had imposed. In unrelated criminal proceedings, he had failed to surrender to bail on three occasions. Having regarded this in his background and the double-figure prison sentence that Rio was looking at if convicted of the rapes, the court found little trouble in finding substantial grounds believing that if bailed, Rio would either interfere with witnesses by tracking down and exerting his toxic influence upon Laurie, or fail to surrender to court for his trial. It struck me, and still strikes today, as an uncomfortable, welcome reminder. Whenever I picture Rio and his earnest, angry indignation, just how inestimable the impact of losing your liberty on a man can be. Everything you have built over the course of a lifetime, your relationships, your family, your employment, your income, your home, is suddenly, without notice, snatched away from you and placed on a high shelf beyond your reach. There's usually no time to get your affairs in order. If you have been on bail before conviction, you will at least have been able to plan for your impending incarceration. Detention in remand effectively starts the moment you are arrested. When the police turn up unexpectedly one Tuesday afternoon while you're midway through hanging up your washing, or as you arrive home from a double shift. From that moment, your freedom is the property of the state. You can be detained at the police station overnight, taken to court from the police cells, and then formally remanded until trial. It could be months, if not years, before you are returned to normality. So let me stop there for a moment, Harvey. I've spoken a little bit about this Rio guy. Uh, I will circle back to him in a little while. But I just wanted to get your thoughts and opinions on on that, being, being remanded and literally having everything snatched away from you. Uh, and bearing in mind, through the court process, you haven't made a plea yet. You haven't gone guilty. You haven't gone not guilty. The court don't know what your verdict is going to be, what your plea is going to be. But ultimately, you're taken away. You see, I, I see is they, they've already made him guilty until proven innocent, which I always thought it was the opposite way around. Yeah, I believed it to be the other way around. So, remanding someone for something that they may have not done should be against every human right. Agreed to the extent of your freedom's gone for perhaps something you didn't do. However, in this case, and we can be you know, pretty confident that it's a serious allegation, at least, and that's all we know it is at this point, allegation of rape against Rio. For the safety of people involved, so in this case, Laurie, and maybe the public... Does that sway your, your mind a little bit to say, yeah, okay, you need to protect people here, maybe remand is the best thing, or is it still a little bit cruel? Take nothing away from it. His past is not nice at all. But until proven guilty, he is now the victim. To some extent, yeah, you could say that. You can't go off someone's past. They may have turned the corner, they may have on the straight and narrow. Something comes up thinking, oh, this would be a laugh or a quick bit of money. And so they just start blaming someone for something they haven't done yeah. um, because of his past he might get guilty from it well let me just read read you back the <clears> sentence of because i think this is the most impactful everything you have built over the course of a lifetime your relationships your family your employment your income your home is suddenly without notice snatched away from you and placed on a high shelf beyond your reach now i know it's hard to imagine but imagine being arrested for an alleged crime You've got no part in this. You you haven't done anything but the police suspect you of something, okay? Yep. And in a moment's notice, 
you were in prison. You were on remand. You are awaiting trial so you can have your say. You're not a guilty man. You haven't had the opportunity to plead yet, like I said, but imagine all of that being taken away from you just on suspicion. If I'm in Rio's shoes, like, with my current lifestyle, if that happened to me, myself and my fiancé couldn't afford our, our mortgage for the month, that would have repercussions. Uh, we obviously have a dog to walk. I know that's not a massive issue, but the dog needs to be walked. Yeah, yeah. We got family we see that depend on us. Uh, bills to pay. Bills to pay, yeah. All of these things off a allegation. Uh, I think that's completely wrong. I think, yes, by all means, give them a warning and possibly a court date or bail date or some kind of meeting after they've investigated it. Yeah. By all means. Yeah, yeah. But you can't just come in and take someone's life away. So are you happy for me to continue, are we? Yep, please continue. Every day that passes is another day that your life is continuing without you in it. Your partner going about their business. Your job still needing to be done. Your children hitting their de developmental milestones. Rent accumulating and bills piling up. And the consequences of their neglect. Dismissal, eviction, repossession, disconnection, awaiting you upon your release, or, more painfully, exacted from your loved ones as you watch their suffering helplessly through the prison bars. For the guilty, it is easy to dismiss this as the unpleasant, but not undeserved, consequence of committing a criminal offence. And, if you are convicted, any time spent remanded in custody will automatically count as time served on your ultimate sentence. So you haven't lost anything. In fact, in such cases, you may have gained, as the privileges regime in prison is more favourable for remand prisoners than for those who are convicted. So you will have spent the part of your sentence in more hospitable surroundings, as hospitable as prison can be, I assume, than you would have been had you been bailed, required to serve your full sentence as a serving prisoner. But, for the not guilty, for, for the innocent, forcibly removed from their homes and families and locked in a fetid cell for 23 hours a day for months, if not years, of their lives, there is nothing. No compensation, no assistance in piecing together or even sweeping up the fragments of your shattered existence. Not even an apology. The jury returned with their not guilty verdict your barrister asks the judge to discharge you from the dock and you are released into the big wide world without so much as a sorry about that old bean. You can't even, as some enterprising defendant argued before a court of appeal, ask a court to order that those wasted months count towards a prison sentence for a future offence. Those six months of hell and the consequent irreparable destruction wrought on the lives of you and your beloved are written off as the price we you pay as a citizen living in our justice system. If the procedure that led to your remand was correctly followed, then your substantive innocence is immaterial. Uh, another good place to stop, Harvey? Yeah, so my thoughts on this. I think if you're found not guilty, I think there should be some kind of letter of apology, news worldwide, like a, a certificate to say that you are not guilty, so you, you can show your employer. Yeah, fair. Uh, therefore, you get your job back. 
just just try and rebuild your life back to what it was before you were handed the prison sentence on a non-guilty. Yeah, so it's it's a strange <clears> one, isn't it? Because obviously, uh, this person is probably somewhat relieved that oh, thankfully I've been found not guilty as intended all along, and thankfully they got that verdict for the innocent. However, what are they getting into when they leave? They they might have lost their job because they've been in prison for several months. They might have lost their friends, depending on the crime. They might have lost their lover if he or she hadn't stuck around because nobody really wants to be stuck in that sort of limbo for however long. Yeah. It's a tough one, isn't it? It's, it's really hard to sort of wrap your head around and go, in a moment's notice, you could lose absolutely everything. And when you return to the world on the other side of uh, a sentence or a remand sentence in this case everything could be very, very different. We call it the justice system. Now, if someone is found guilty, they will say justice has been served or dealt, whatever. But where's the justice in a non-guilty person? Well, that's what I thought made this story quite interesting, Harvey. It's just the, th- the, the thought and the fear of um, literally having your, your life changed on maybe an allegation, you know, like a... Using you as an example, I'd say you've got a very, very good, very happy life, something that you're proud of that you've built up over a, you know, over a long time. And of course, you deserve it. I've never want that taken away from you. Let's hypothetically say that it does. Overnight, you're in turmoil based on an allegation and nothing more. Isn't that a scary thought? Very scary. And we're not even in control of it. So it could literally happen to anybody. Absolutely, and that's maybe even more scarier than anything, to be honest with you. This could be this could be anybody's story, and I'm sure there are countless stories of this actually happening in other people's lives. That's the case. That's part down to why there's such a large number of mental health cases these days. Uh, perhaps, yeah, especially in the, in the prisons. I'm sure they have a difficulty sort of trying to stay on top of people's mental health. Obviously, it's very important in this day and age to try and, you know, live a healthy lifestyle, both mentally and physically. And imagine being in prison, regardless of whether you are guilty and you've accepted your time, or if you're innocent, on remand, or even the innocently convicted. Yeah, I imagine that, you know, that must hurt quite a bit, to be honest. So just to round things up a little bit, Harvey, Rio, he was acquitted. The jury did not accept Laurie's claims and Rio was found not guilty on every count. The time spent on remand was upon something he was supposed to accept, forgive and forget. How would you ever forget that? Taking months of your life away from you and all you've been asked to do is forget. It's, it's a tough one to sort of try and take, isn't it? Because obviously, when that much time is wasted on an innocent party... You're right, the court could probably argue what well, justice was served, and well, in this case, it wasn't needed to be served, so therefore, everyone wins. But no, in this case, the person, well, the accused, was the person that ended up being, being left without much to go back to in the real world. That's a shame. In a little bit of a twist, though, Harvey, you thought it was over, but it is not. His trial, at which he was acquitted ultimately took place a year after I first met him in that dank prison cubicle, all because vital material that assisted his defence was sat on by the prosecution and not disclosed until it was too late for Alan and I to do anything with it. So, the judge granted Alan's application to adjourn the first trial, bailed to his mate's flat to piece his life together again while he awaited 
his eventual acquittal. Rio's face as he was granted bail will remain with me until the end of my career. The unrestrained happiness, the rolling tears of relief at being free. He only attended trial because he was bought in a van from prison. Rio got high on a cocktail of ecstasy, crack and vodka. He took a kitchen knife to the local pub and plunged it 30 times into the chest, throat and back of a random punter. He was, by the time of his adjourned rape trial, serving life for murder. Any thoughts, Harvey, to close? I guess the biggest problem is nobody would have thought he would have gone out and done that. So you're thinking maybe the bail was a better option because give him time to clear his head and stuff like that. But if you remand someone for doing something not as bad, if you know what I mean, then that could have a negative effect. But if if we're thinking of stuff that potentially could could happen, why isn't everyone just remanded? Yeah, you're right. It's um, it's a little bit of a juggling act, isn't it? Because the difficulty in making those decisions, I imagine, is pretty tough in itself. Let alone regretting a decision when something mad like that happens, which which Rio um, which Rio did, of course, like taking um, taking somebody's life and ended up in prison. Obviously, rape isn't good at all. Surely, their worst case scenario was he'd go out and rape again, being that's the charge he's been unbailed for. Yeah, but no one could have even thought he would have gone out and killed somebody. But I guess what I'm asking you is, why is bail there? Uh, true. It's a little bit of a strange one in different circumstances and why some people are bailed, some people aren't. I'm not really too sure because in the story, obviously, the secret barrister didn't add too much context. So I'm not really too sure in terms of the rape ac- accusations if that had been made public knowledge yet. And if so... Was that possibly a consequence of somebody being a little bit mouthy to him, perhaps? And he was like, you know what, I'm going to do you in. And ultimately, you know, he did. He killed someone. Um, but do you think that could have been a consequence? He was getting a little bit of stick from someone down the pub, perhaps? Or... Yeah, I'm sure people are nasty enough to, if they hear even suspicion of doing something, that they can be a bit mouthy. So, uh, yeah, that could have been the case, but obviously doesn't condone him killing anybody. No, of course. But um, is it a case of if if they're bailed, it kind of gives the, the the prison, the court, the judge, all that a bit of time to kind of get everything else in check? Basically, they haven't got enough time to remand the person, so they put them on bail. Uh, I think it favours the uh, defendant a little bit, Harvey. You know, I think it's more time for him to get his defence in place rather than anything else to be put in place. But like in the story, obviously when you get remanded at such short notice, literally immediately after your arrest, uh, you need to maybe get your things in order a little bit. Obviously, you know, life, relationships, bills, etc. So yeah, it's a tough one to to weigh up, really. It's a tough one to make those decisions, isn't it? See, I guess it comes down to the individual. If he's, if he's had previous experience of prison and being on the wrong end of the law, like... I think remand is probably the best outcome. Yeah, arguably. I mean, the whole job of the court really is to protect the public, and in that sense, they're probably doing that by by remanding someone that has been accused of rape. Um, the irony as well, of course, going back to my story, and we'll never know, obviously it's hypothetical, possible, but hypothetical, if someone was, you know, giving him a bit of grief down the pub for his 
for his um, arrest and subsequent charge from the police for a rape charge, uh, then obviously the irony of of that being acquitted of his rape charge, but actually committing murder in the process to try and defend himself. I'm not trying to make it sound like he's defending himself or anything like that. It sounds very much from the story that he killed out of cold blood, which is obviously devastating. But but yeah, it's just it's a weird story, isn't it? It's ironic, and Harvey, that's honestly why I brought it up. Definitely intriguing, but yeah, it's just a case of you're going to have to put a bit of faith in, in these criminals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a strange, strange one, isn't it? Uh, let's just finish, Harvey, with asking you, if you were a judge or a magistrate and you had to make those decisions, ultimately, would you be able to? Um, well, based on the charges he had initially? A little bit. You could use like the, the Rio story as, as an example, or just in general. So when people come come to you, into your courtroom, whatever, and obviously it's your decision to bail or remand them, would you be able to do that? Would you have the conviction to, ironically conviction, but would you be able to do it with a clear head? Would you be able to make good decisions? I think I would be able to make a decision at the time, but I'm in the mind of if I was the judge in this case, I would feel guilty myself for sending them out on bail when this happens. Yeah, of course. So obviously... Some guy lost his life. That's devastating. Obviously, he was bailed eventually. And yeah, there's obviously probably investigations into that. Yeah, that's um, crazy. Anything else to add, Harvey? No, that's about it. You got any more stories for us? Yeah, let's try one more. So, Harvey, I've got a little bit of a story. I think it's a little bit of a shorter one. It's about a man named Warren. Uh, not too much to say right now. Let's just go with the flow and see what you think along the way, okay? Yep, yeah, go for it. On the 31st of December 1998, Warren Blackwell was seeing in the new year at a social club in his local village in Northamptonshire with his wife of six years. Over the course of the evening, he was introduced to a woman, Susan, and as alcohol flowed, they played a game of pool. After the clock chimed midnight, Susan took a break from the revelry and wandered outside to catch some fresh air. As she stepped outside, she heard a familiar male voice behind her. Happy New Year, the man said. Susan recognised the voice, but before she could turn around, the man took hold of her. She felt the metallic sting of a knife pressed up against her left thigh and froze in fear as she was grabbed roughly by the arm and dragged down an alleyway. Away from the club, and towards a grassy area. Although dark, Susan could see in the amber glare of the streetlight that it was the man from the club, the man she had played pool with. It was Warren. He grabbed her breast and tried to kiss her. When she didn't respond, he became angry and punched her in the face four times. He then pushed her to the ground, sat on her legs, and placed something cold and metallic on her bare stomach. Looking down, Susan saw that it was a blunt object that looked a little bit like a file, approximately nine inches long and an inch wide. The man tugged her trousers down to her knees. He took the metal object and pushed it between her legs into her vagina, causing agonizing pain. When he had finished, he punched her once more to the face hard enough to knock her unconscious. When Susan awoke, She was surrounded by concerned locals who had found her outside on the ground. 
the assault was reported to the police. There was no forensic scientific evidence, such as DNA, to link any specific incident to the attack. But when inspected by doctors, Susan was found to have bruising on her arm, scratches to her thigh, and lacerations on her genitals, which appeared consistent with her account. She attended an identification procedure on the 19th of January 1999 and picked out Warren Blackwell as her attacker. Alright, let's just stop there for a sec, Harvey. Obviously, a very <clears throat> nasty crime, and I don't really think there's much else to say about that unless you want to add something. It's just really random. Like, he just wanted to do harm to her. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's a little bit of a crazy one, isn't it? It's, it's... Obviously, not that rape is acceptable either. I'm just saying. You're right. It was, it's almost like he did it to scare her, or there was some kind of power he felt over her yeah. at that moment that he enjoyed. So, like I say, it's a bit of a bit of a nasty one, this, but it's interesting. Trust me, stick, I'll stick with it. You ready for me to continue? Yeah, go for it. So this was how the prosecution opened its case at Warren Blackwell's trial for indecent assault at Northampton Crown Court. Warren Blackwell denied that he had done any such thing. He told police when arrested and the jury at trial that he had been at the club that night and had played pool with Susan but knew nothing of what had happened to her outside. This, it was said on his behalf, was a terrible case of mistaken identity. She had seen him that night at the club and must have confused him for her attacker. And that was how the judge summed up the case to the jury. It was never suggested for a moment by anyone at trial that the attack had not happened. Nothing had been disclosed to the defence by the prosecution to suggest that Susan might not be truthful. Uh, the jury returned on the 7th of October 99 with a majority verdict of guilty that precipitated the imposition of a three-year sentence of imprisonment. And the state entered on its official records the indisputable finding of fact that Susan had been violently and sexually assaulted. And that man responsible was Warren Blackwell. Now, as you know, Harvey, with these sort of stories, by now, <coughs> I think you'll you'll understand. Uh, I'm going to continue with the story in a minute, obviously. Uh, he's denying that the offence ever took place. What, what do you think? Again, it's a tough one, because only he will know if he did or not. Obviously, she, she says that she knew. Obviously, it said drinks were flowing. So, I'm not saying alcohol played a massive part in this, because we don't know how much drink was taken, but... Like I said earlier, it doesn't make any sense for him to do that if it is him. Yeah. I'm not saying she's lying, but it just sounds like he's not that kind of person. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think an interesting fact of the story as well, instead in one of the early paragraphs, was that his wife was in the bowl with him. So, again, it's a little bit, you know, why would he go outside and do that nasty, nasty thing or nasty crime? Such close proximity to... His wife, who's in the pub, in the bar, and people also celebrating because it's New Year's Eve. So you imagine there would have been a lot of people there. Where are the witnesses? Anyway, I'll continue, are we? Uh, the jury returned on 7th of October 99 with the majority verdict of guilty that precipitated the imposition of a three-year sentence of imprisonment. And the state entered on its official records the indisputable finding of fact that Susan had been violent and violently and sexually assaulted, and that man responsible was Warren Blackwell. Except, 
it transpired. He wasn't. The entire story the Court of Appeal later heard was a fiction. And what was more, the police had suspected as much the entire time. The truth did not emerge, however, until after Warren Blackwell had served his prison sentence. And not just the three-year sentence imposed by the trial judge, the sentence was referred to the Court of Appeal by the Attorney General as unduly lenient. Given the viciousness of the assault, the Court of Appeal agreed that three years was insufficient. And on the 22nd of March 2001, the same day that it refused his renewed application to appeal against his conviction, the court increased his sentence to five years. He served two-thirds of that sentence, three years and four months before being released. Innocent, wrongly convicted, and then kicked one final time by the Court of Appeal, Warren Blackwell sought help in the last refuge available to him, the Criminal Cases Review Commission, CCRC is a statutory body established in 95 to investigate alleged miscarriages of justice. Once an appeal has been refused by the Court of Appeal, the only route to having a conviction reconsidered is if the CCRC investigates and concludes that due to some new evidence or legal argument, there is a real possibility that the Court of Appeal will quash the conviction. In that scenario, the CCRC will refer the case to the Court of Appeal which will consider the new grounds of appeal and decide whether the conviction is unsafe. Susan was well known to the police. Not only did she have a record of previous convictions for offences of dishonesty, which were not disclosed to the defence at the trial, but she had developed a reputation as something of a serial complainant. Between October 98 and June 2001, Susan made a succession of allegations some involved her being grabbed at night from behind by strange men who led her to secluded areas, forced her to lie down, pulled her trousers down to her knees, and brutalised her. Many complaints were accompanied with apparent cooperative injuries, but medical and other evidence showed that the injuries had been self-inflicted or pre-existed the alleged incident. In each instance, the police force investigated and concluded that Susan's allegations were fabrications and the injuries self-inflicted. This interpretation was supported by psychiatric and medical records obtained by the CCRC, which were in the possession of the Crown Prosecution Service during Warren Blackwell's trial, but not disclosed to the defence. The CCRC gathered evidence from numerous other witnesses who knew Susan well, including Susan's former husband, mother, daughter, former boyfriends, including her Beyonce at the time of the New Year's Day incident, and all of whom confirmed that Susan was a prolific and convincing liar. Susan's daughter referred to a specific incident in 99 in which she had witnessed her mother harming herself and then claiming she had been attacked. So obviously, Harvey, the twist for this, this story is we're made to believe that Warren Blackwell in this instance did commit the crime and obviously we're there thinking you know what a nasty piece of work how could he do that to someone and the twist in this case is it was proven to all be all be lies. Have you got any thoughts on this? See it, 
again, she must have some kind of mental problem, which obviously there's a lot about these days, but wanted to inflict mental strain on someone else. Yeah. By them taking the blame for something that she does. I think it's probably a classic <clears throat> example of trying to find sympathy, because people are going to understandably sympathise with people who have suffered horrific uh, real-life rapes and assaults, such as... Well, not even such as her, because she didn't have any. You know, it was all fabrication. But there are pe- real people in the world that have suffered them injuries. They're going to be looked after to some extent. And she wants that attention as well, that comfort of almost feeling like a victim herself. She probably enjoys that to some extent. That doesn't mean it's right, of course, because, you know, it could have cost... Um, well, it did. It cost Warren Blackwell his, uh, his reputation and his life for three years plus. As we both said before, the end of that, that story there... Like his wife was in the bar, they were getting off fine in the bar. Yeah. She walked out and then it happens. Yeah, exactly. And I guess rape was easier to determine than harm. Uh yeah, probably a little bit. Obviously DNA evidence and things like that, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's a little bit it's a little bit of a grim story. Uh made even grimmer by the fact that she was lying in my opinion, which you're right, she's probably got her own mental struggles. If she's self harming and things like that, that's that's not right. She should have obviously seeked help for that. The bit that I find confusing is not one witness came forward. Yeah, exactly. That, I don't think there were any witnesses. I think that was the thing. Yeah, I didn't hear any witnesses in that story. No, see? But, but surely that should have been the defendant's first question. Yeah, I mean, that isn't stated in the story. You would imagine that it probably was, that nobody else was witness to this alleged crime. Uh, it's literally her word versus mine. And you know what? In a sort of sad way... The woman was believed because her allegations were that severe. Do you see what I mean? It's it, yeah. Because it is such a nasty thing to go through, she didn't go through it, but because it is such a nasty crime, she had the sympathy of the court, the jury, the judge, the prosecution. And poor Warren sat there knowing that he hadn't done anything and being sent down for it. That's, um, that's disgusting, isn't it? Uncalled for, and yeah, literally wasted years of his life Yeah, from a simple lie. Yeah, exactly, and it was literally just her word versus his. Um, something else I found interesting as well from this story, Harvey, was the bit where they said that there were medical records about Susan, you know, that she had previously accused people of crime such as this. The Crown Prosecution Service had this information, but knowing it would strengthen his defence if they gave it to him, they didn't give it to him. And that could have arguably have been the thing that twisted the jury's decision. Well, if Susan has previous, which she has, because you have disclosed that evidence, she's been proven as a liar before, this is a regular occurrence, maybe he wouldn't have been sentenced at all. Maybe he would have been acquitted. And the thing that stands out for me is, yes, this could have potentially happened. It would be a freak if it did happen, like, twice. But she's got the same self-inflicted wounds and scars that she did when... He apparent attacked her. You're right. It's um, I don't know what to say. Really, so she just happened to have the same, the same wounds as the accusation. Yeah, basically, I understand what you're saying. It's no coincidence that that was there for the accusation. Although that was probably part of the fabrication as well, because she could say, "Oh, look, I've got a bruise on my thigh. He hit me in my thigh." Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, I'm a little bit disappointed. Obviously, firstly that she lied. I'm also a little bit disappointed in the prosecution service who let's be honest should stick to sentencing criminals not the innocent and the fact that that 
information wasn't disclosed to the defence, that's pretty disgusting in itself. There should have been there should have been punishments for the uh, Crown Prosecution Service there, in my opinion, as well, at least. No, I don't know how how the law works when it comes to prison and things, but who issued after three years that he was innocent? Uh, surely the case goes goes dead after that. Yeah, so the only reason that it did eventually get overturned, uh, I think I've got one more paragraph to read, obviously, so I'll get to that in a moment. Yeah, the reason it was overturned was because Warren kept fighting for it because he knew that he hadn't done anything wrong. Do you see what I mean? So he went to the Court of Appeal. His appeal was rejected. And the only other thing he could do was go to the CCRC, and they opened an investigation, found out that that information about Susan being a habitual liar wasn't disclosed to the defence. That was technically classed as new evidence, and therefore it could have swayed the jury's decision. So the case was almost reopened, re-evaluated, and go, you know what, we're going to acquit him and say he is now not guilty. But at that point, unfortunately, it was already too late. He had already served, I think it was three years, four months, something like that, of a five-year sentence. So basically the courts were always going to make him guilty. Yeah. Because they had evidence to, to get him off it. Yeah. And they didn't bring it forward. So his fate was all, already doubt before he stepped in the court. Yeah. Uh, although, let's just say, it was, it was his, you're right, his fate was decided by the Crown Prosecution Service rather than the, the jury of the judge because that information was purpose, purposefully held back because it didn't suit their agenda, the Prosecution Service. Um they kept that information back, and yeah, it ultimately ended up costing him his uh, his time in three three years, four months in prison. Well, I hope this last paragraph gets a bit of justice himself and kind of gets his life back on track. Yeah, sure, I'll be. Well, I'll get to that now. So putting all this information together, the CCRC referred the case to the Court of Appeal. There was new evidence that was not adduced at trial that, when considered as a whole, provides a strong case to support the conclusion that the complainant, Susan, was not the victim of any assault and that her injuries were self-inflicted. Prosecution could not sensibly and did not oppose the appeal, conceding the above ground of appeal and expressively inviting the Court of Appeal to find that the conviction was unsafe. So on the 12th of September 2006, nearly seven years after his trial, Warren Blackwell's conviction was squashed with the Court of Appeal expressing its grave concerns over the prospect of further Warren Blackwell's being snared by Susan and her lies. He got his acquittal eventually. The sentence was ruled out as if to say it never existed. That does not exist on his record. One thing they can't do, obviously, though, is give him the time back. Funny that. Yeah. So, I don't know, Harvey, there's... One more little thing to add as well. Not any twists or anything like that. I'm not going to do that to you. But uh, this is just this from the secret barrister's point of view. And uh, they say, I make no apology for the level of detail because this case demonstrates in glorious, terrifying technicolour the danger of assuming, as inquisitorialism does, that if you are falsely accused of a crime, the state is capable of pulling together all the relevant information that you will need to secure your acquittal. And while it may be argued that Warren Blackwell is an extreme example, it only stands as such because its failings were ultimately exposed on the grandest stage of all. So basically, 
it, it may have happened once before to someone else, and that's all it takes. We have 99 innocent people it happened to, but if it happens to one, people assume. Yeah, I think I think that's fair, Harvey. Yeah. Um, let's not condone any of the behaviour, obviously. Susan, clearly, from my point of view, mentally unwell. And although there's such a thing as perverting the course of justice, couldn't you argue that Susan was trying to do exactly that, put an innocent man behind bars? She is perverting the course of justice, no? Yes, which she should be punished for. Which, yeah, which is what I think she should have been punished for. Uh, in the story, there was nothing to suggest she did, or there was nothing in the story to suggest that she went on to go address her mental health issues. So let's just hope that she never accused anyone again after that. And let's hope she has out she needs. Yeah, for sure. So that roundabout brings at the end of the podcast, Harvey. Maybe you enjoyed this one. Yeah, it was different. I certainly enjoyed reading the book. Uh, I have finished it now, so... Obviously no author, hence the, the title. Yeah, The Secret Barrister. So... Available on all book, good bookstores if you want to check that out yourselves. She's also, I say she, could be a he, we don't know. They have got a, a blog under the same sort of title of being the secret barrister. It's an unnamed blog where she shares similar stories. So if that's something you might want in the future, uh, the same goes for you, Harvey. Just let us know. We can knock up another episode, maybe. Yeah, we certainly can. Well, thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you soon. See ya. Goodbye.